There we go. Yeah. A small uh, sample, a rough sample of, of what I hope to do uh, in Germany. I told you that I'd tell you more about that. Uh, Lord willing, we've been given this opportunity to go over there and encourage missionaries throughout Europe and they gather in Germany and so we worked out the situation so that Gina could come join us and we're hopeful that she'll get to meet some people that are in European missions. It's not uh, at all different from what a lot of our missionaries do in, uh, in Asia where they have regional annual meetings and they encourage one another. That's very important in the, uh, in the mission field and so sometimes our families that are in Asia get to meet up with one another or uh, see one another. This is the same sort of thing. And, um, and I've heard about this, and friends of mine are involved in it, but I really have the sense that I'm going to go over there and meet people who are uh, probably going to inspire me. So the uh, best thing I can do is take them some inspiration from God's Word. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be encouraged and what it means to be um, discouraged and um, and just uh, thinking over the, 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 the different times that I've struggled with that, and I'm sure that we all have. And um, this is a companion piece to what we preached this morning where the two Emmaus travelers are discouraged. They're on the road of discouragement, on the road of failure, and on the road of, um, of despair, and it's the presence of Jesus and him explaining that this all fits into what God is doing that encourages them. But there's some unanswered questions from this morning, things that you, know, you just don't have time to get into in a sermon. For example, how do you pray for something knowing that God's will is better than our will, but we still want things a certain way? And it's not always for selfish reasons. Sometimes we ask God, why? why? Why do things have to be this way? And, it, and it, it's, it's never fully satisfying to say, well, that's just God's will. That's the way he wants it, unless there is some understanding. At least with those two Emmaus travelers, Jesus gave them the understanding along the way. He made it clear to them that, um, that this was all part of God's work and that God intended it to be this way. So... Um, the, uh, the, the words for encouragement have to do with giving someone their heart back. And maybe instead of looking at prayer and faithfulness and trust simply as an endeavor where God intends to go one direction, whether we like it or not, and we have to beg and beg and beg and plead to get him to turn the other way around, and then everything's going to be okay. And I think that, that there's much more to this relationship with God than that. For example, we've been asked to pray for this situation in Bulgaria. As far as we can all tell, it would be a, it would be a good thing, it would be a blessed thing for the Christians there, and they would be encouraged if those laws do not pass that would restrict religious freedom. But what if they do? Does that mean we didn't pray hard enough? Does that mean that God doesn't care? We prayed last week that one of our brothers would be free from, from persecution and not be arrested. And God 
decided that that was not what would glorify him. But what if it had, but what if he had not? And what if that, and, and, and by the way, that situation is still open as I understand. Things could, I mean, there's always that possibility. So what happens then? Does that mean that someone failed? Does that mean that someone didn't trust in God? This is what's difficult in uh, being a believer and following and, and knowing that, that we're mortal and we can't see things the way God sees it. And I, I, I've never accepted the fact that just copping out and saying, well, it's above my pay grade and God will figure this all out. I don't think so. Why else would he give, it, why else would he give us this much word? Uh, I mean, if, if that was all that there was to it, then God could have sent us a pamphlet and just said, trust me, you stay out of it, you don't know, you'll never understand. Okay, but instead you see God's people over the centuries pouring themselves out over and over and over in this. Even Jesus is discussing God's will in the garden, and he's trusting in God, even though he wants things to go another way, but he understands that they cannot, not if it's going to accomplish God's purposes and glorify him. Where I, where I want to take you is if you'll go to the uh, very right there at the start of your Bible, just six books in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, this is, uh, here in Joshua chapter 1, we have a, a verse that has to do with uh, encouragement and discouragement and fear and worry and trusting in God. And this refrain gets used over and over again, at least in the Old Testament. And I think there's even uh, examples of it in the New Testament. In Joshua 1, there's a transition. The, the leadership of God's people who've known nothing but, they've known nothing but Moses. Moses is their deliverer. He is the one that came on God's behalf rescued them out of a meaningless existence in Egypt, told them that they would be brought into a land of promise. They didn't fully trust. One generation dies out. Another generation comes of age in the wilderness. And now they are on the edge of the promised land. But it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a battle. And they're going to have to fight for it. So they're almost there, but they're not quite yet there. And so God has a word for Joshua because now in the, I mean, if you think about it, it's the absolute worst time to lose your general. I mean, the best thing they could do, remember that when they, even when Moses was old and they would hold his arms up, they would win the battle. That's encouragement. Now they don't have Moses. They've got Joshua. They're... All of the doubts could just pile on them, but God has to give Joshua sort of a pep talk and has to give him an explanation of what it means to be the leader of these people and accomplish his purposes. Uh, I want to pick up, uh, well, let's just read from verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you... And all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates and the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. 
No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6, pay attention to these words. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So, let's take a look at what God says to Joshua. Three times he says, be strong, be courageous. And these two words have to do, well, they, they really, it's, it's interesting. If you look them up in the original language, they, they mean not just be strong and be courageous. They mean about the same thing. It's like he's saying, uh, I want you to be bold and I want you to be bold. I want you to be brave and I want you to be brave. It's kind of the same thing. Um, there might be some slight differences in meaning, but, but here's, here's the kind of the feel of these words, okay? It, it, they have to do with becoming hard, becoming unmovable, okay? And, and in fact, you'll see these words used in interesting ways, like the famine in Egypt during the time of Joseph, it grows stronger it intensifies uh, this word the strong word has to the word we translate strong here has to do with something getting more and more set in and grounded okay so if you think of um, you know sports and you think of football sometimes your success is based on the fact that you're planted firmly and you are unmovable. And then you can block those who are coming against you. It's all about footing. So you have to be stronger. You have to be, and stronger is just a matter of not budging, of not giving an inch. Uh, it's like wrestling. Wrestling sometimes is not about weight and strength, but it's about position and leverage. Here, this word is about being strong, getting uh, getting more and more set in. The courageous word has to do with what's going on inside. Uh, here, um, you, you see a lot of the idea of, of getting your heart back. No, remember that when the Emmaus travelers were talking to Jesus, they said then, after their conversation with him, and they recognized him, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us? It's like, you know, what does that mean, to have your heart burn? Does it mean an ache? Does it mean that they've got you know, some sort of, uh, you know, indigestion. No, it means that their hearts came alive. Their inner person came alive. They got strengthened. They got revived. And uh, they got their spirit back. You know, we have phrases for this. And, and it's, it's interesting because you have to use language to describe an inner process that's somewhat indescribable. And the language of the heart and being courageous, or we talk about being encouraged that means you're going to get your courage back you're going to you're going to you're going to get back your uh um, you're not going to flinch okay and you're getting your heart back uh i liked it one of the 
reference work said that some languages, the way that they express this is you, um, not in the Bible, but other languages, you're, you're going to have your liver stand up. I don't understand that one. I don't get it. But, you know, people believe in different organs being the seat of emotions. And uh, I remember my language teacher saying that uh, uh, in, in one Indian tribe, that was the way that they expressed love. They, you know, you love a girl with all of your, not with all of your heart, but with all of your liver, you know. So, oh, and, you know, she's impressed with that, isn't she? And, uh, you know, but it's just a funny way people express things. So here the idea is God is saying three times to Joshua, I want you to be strengthened and set in your position. Don't flinch. And I want you to have that inner courage. I want you to have that, that fire inside. Um, some, some ways of describing this talk about a heart being turned into iron. Now, having your heart turned into stone can sound like a bad thing, but if we're talking about having it set where it's, you know, unmovable, unshakable, then having an iron heart might sound, that sounds kind of like a good thing, like having a brave heart or a lion heart, you know, you're, you're strengthened inside. And here I think heart has to do with not just the, the, the blood pumper, but the inner core of your being. So three times God's word to Joshua is be strong and courageous. Now in each one of those, uh, he says something a little different to inform that message. The first one is in verse uh, 6. Be strong and courageous. And we can say, why? Okay. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors. The land I swore to give them. This takes us back to Abraham. God is saying, you, he's saying to Joshua, you can be strong and courageous because I made a promise And I have a habit of keeping those promises. God is saying, I'm good for this. So no matter what else happens, if Joshua falls in battle, he knows that the purpose or the mission is going to be fulfilled, not by his own ability to lead, but by God's ability to keep promises. That the mission is the people are going to inherit that land. Whatever else happens, God's going to fulfill that so he can... He can take confidence, and he can be secure and assured in that, which is another fair translation of strong and courageous. Take assurance. Be assured. Okay, the second one, be strong and very courageous. How do I do that? Joshua might ask. Be careful to obey all the law that my servant Moses gave you. Don't don't waver from it. Don't turn to the right or left. That way you'll be successful wherever you go. Now Moses had given the law. He had set a standard for the way that the people ought to live. Being strong and courageous, if if Joshua needs a compass heading to keep him on target, it's that word, that instruction, that law that God gave Moses. That's going to keep him focused. You know, there's there's a lot of debate in the culture around us right now as to whether or not moral leadership is necessary. Um, the debate's been around for a long, long time. It's probably been around longer than any of us have been alive. And, you know, even in recent, it's not just a recent thing, like in the last, you know, 10 years or so. It's been around. I can remember it uh, for a long time. Usually comes up with politics. 
doesn't matter what a man or a woman does in his private life. Can they do the job? Okay, okay. Both sides do this. You know, all, all sides do this. Um, tends to come up in different things. People, uh, yeah, I face it with other ministers and other people in ministry. It's like, oh, why do I got to lose my job for a moral failure? And then these other guys, I mean, you know, they can do all this and they keep doing their job. Okay, okay, fine, fair enough, whatever. The point is, moral integrity does matter for leadership. And it's right here that he's saying why. It's not about public shame or reputation. It's about having the character to be the leader in difficult times. Doesn't mean you can't make a mistake. Doesn't mean that there's not failures. Moses makes his mistakes. Abraham makes his mistakes. Uh, But whether or not they will commit to the instruction and the way of God is the moral test of leadership. Roll the time machine forward and look at David, the king of of Israel. Uh, The the first thing he does when you read about the, the sin that he engages in with Bathsheba is he's not where he's supposed to be. In, uh, in, in, in 1 Kings, it says, uh, in the springtime when kings go to war, David was back home. He should have been out there with his troops being strong and courageous. Instead, he's back home on the, on the roof, on the patio, I and the neighbors. And that's not where he's supposed to be. And then everything comes loose from there. When he's convicted by the rightness of God's way and the injustice of what he's done, he repents. He doesn't waver anymore. He goes back to following God. Joshua is being told that he will be successful if he will do what God has asked him to do. Now, that's not a tit-for-tat exchange where it's like, look, Joshua, you do this the way I want it, and I'll give you what you want. This is about Joshua being the kind of leader who will have success And it depends, I mean, he has to first check himself. Uh, It's really interesting that, uh, you know, a lot of this debate goes on and on today in leadership, especially on the political level in the media about, well, it doesn't matter what someone does in their private life, you know, because uh, what they do uh, out there publicly is all that matters, and as long as they do that. Well, okay, that's interesting, but at the same time, you have so many books on leadership and so many messages on leadership, even from secular sources, and the first thing they say to anyone who's in any kind of position of responsibility or leadership, two words, manage yourself. The first person you have to manage is yourself before you can worry about everybody else. Now, if if you're going to do that, then you have to set the example. You have to become the kind of person that you're leading other people to be. And the way to do that is to follow God who makes us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. So the first thing is God's going to keep his promises. Second thing, God is going to encourage Joshua if he will stick to his word. And by the way, I think there's another message here. You'll remember that a few months ago we had Hal Runkle uh, here. He was doing a seminar. It was on parenting and adulthood and and it's good stuff. It's good stuff all around. And I, I have to find out if he's going to do that other book. He was talking about it. 
all that stuff he, he was talking about. I, I mean, I wished I had thought to write that book because, I mean, he, he, he got a lot of my material. And, um, um, you know, he doesn't even know it. But the one about the oxygen mask is the one that I love the most. You get on the plane, they get out there and they do their safety dance, you know, and they tell you all about the this and this. And if the cabin depressurizes, the oxygen mask comes on and they always say, put it on first before assisting others. Well, that sounds very selfish, doesn't it? I mean, if you put your oxygen mask on before taking care of everybody else, look at you. Jesus says to think of others more highly than yourself. You know, we're supposed to look to the good of others, right? Yes, that's true. But by putting your oxygen mask on first, spiritually and physically, you are looking to the good of others. Because if you don't put your oxygen mask on, you will pass out. And then you're no good to anyone else. The best you can do at that point is you'll be that flotation device that they're all looking for when uh, the plane goes in the water. That's it. But you have to see to your own survival, at least, or, or spiritual benefit. Our oxygen mask is the Spirit of God. And, and, we, and, and the Spirit of God is embedded in the Word of God, too. I'm not saying it's restricted there. I don't want to get into that debate, but I'm saying that the Word and the Spirit agree that they go together. And so we've got to breathe in the Spirit of God if we're going to thrive and lead others, even in our family or our friends or our neighbors. Um, You can't do this alone. You've got to have God's air in your spirit. You've got to have His Spirit in you. Uh, So that's what he's telling Joshua to do here. The third occasion where he says be strong and courageous he says then do not be afraid do not be discouraged now I want to know what those words are all about being afraid and being discouraged here has to do with um, you know the way we would say it in English is don't sit there and shake in your boots you know that's that's really what this is about Uh, the first word being afraid has to do with uh, you know having tremors, being, being shaken, you're, you're, you're that disturbed, you're that afraid that you, you don't even know what to move, you're agitated, you're very anxious. Don't be discouraged means that you don't have your heart taken out of you. Those, followers on the, those fellows who were traveling on the Emmaus Road, they were, uh, they were downcast. Their spirit, they'd had the spiritual wind knocked out of them. So he says, instead, you're going you're to be strong and courageous, not frightened and afraid and anxious. Why? Because the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. You're not alone. He's with you. Now, there's one more occasion in this chapter of that. If you skip on down to the very end, verse 18. The people answer Joshua, and they say, whatever you've commanded us, we'll do, and wherever you send us, we will go. So God's going to be with Joshua wherever he goes. And then the people say, Joshua, we're going to be with you wherever you go. So just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. There's a commitment. They're making their commitment to Joshua the same way they did to Moses. This is going to get everybody encouraged. There's not going to be any doubt. We can't have anybody questioning it. We can't get out there in the midst of battle. We can't get out there as we're trying to take the land. And somebody said, well, I like the way that Moses did things better. You know, he, he's, he really did a much better job. You can't have that. We're going to follow you, Joshua. 
All they ask is this, that the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. How are they going to know that? Well, if Joshua follows God's way and doesn't waver from the left or the right, that might be an indication that God's with him. Uh, If God's keeping his promises and fulfilling the mission through Joshua, that might be an indication. He says, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, that person will be put to death. This is getting serious now. You know, they're saying, you know, if anybody, anybody breaks the line, that, that's it for them. Okay. And this is, this is a military context. So that's treason he's talking about. All, and then they are the ones that say to Joshua, only be strong and courageous. Now, God's been saying that to Joshua. Now, the people tell him that. You know, sometimes what we need to tell our leaders and what we need to tell our shepherds and the people that we look up to is, hey, hold me accountable. Be strong and courageous. Don't waver. I'm looking to you to guide me. When, I'm, you know, when I lose my head, I'm looking to you to keep your head. Um, now, there's another interesting parallel here. If you go back to those three statements that God said to Joshua, the first one, be strong and courageous. Why? Because the mission is to go get the land. That's the mission. Be strong and courageous. Follow the teaching that I've given you. Be strong and courageous. I'm with you. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes to his disciples. We know this is the Great Commission. But he says, as you go out, wherever you go, make disciples. That's the mission. Uh, Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. That's the process. That's how you make the disciples. You see the parallels here. Joshua, go take the land. That's the mission. The process is not that you're going to be stronger or tougher or faster at battle than anybody else, but you're going to be Deeply rooted in my ways. You're going to follow the teaching. And then both of these end in exactly the same way. The thing we can never forget about the Great Commission, because we, we often unpack those, those first three statements. You know, Make disciples. How? You've got to baptize them. got to teach them. What do we got to teach them? Then we go over that again. And then we think it's all up to us. We run out there. Got to make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. Got to make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. But remember, the last part of it is so important. Jesus says... I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. He's not going to abandon us. And if we thought about what that really meant, just like we saw in the text this morning from Luke 24, they had no reason to be discouraged. Why? Because Christ was back. He was with them. He was there. And then he keeps showing up. He's extending his peace, and he finally leaves and blesses them all, and his spirit is given. When we get over to uh, John's gospel, we find out that the, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit is sent. Now, what's interesting is the Holy Spirit is sent to be a comforter. And we have trouble with that word because it's an odd form of the word. Sometimes we call it the paraclete. And that doesn't make any sense in English. That sounds like football gear, you know, paracletes. And uh, you, uh, you know, you got to have those along with, your, along with your shoulder pads. You know, what's paraclete? 
Well, we, we call it that because that's, that's an actual transliteration of the Greek word, which is taken from the Greek word that means, get this, to encourage. So another way to translate that would be not just that the Holy Spirit is the comforter, but why don't we call the Holy Spirit the encourager? Hey. Because comforter sounds like the Holy Spirit's sort of a, you know, a, 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 a blankie that, you know, we, we cuddle up to when we're feeling bad, you know. It comforts me, you know. It's, it's a quilt. It's nice and, yeah, but, but I don't always need that. Sometimes I need something that stirs me up, lights a fire in me, gives me my heart back and says, you need to get up and get out there and do, do this. We can do this. You know, I need somebody rousting me up. But if Holy Spirit's just a comforter, then I'm, I'm going to be a couch potato. You know? uh, I'm going to go curl up my Bible and drink some coffee and read my Bible. and Comfort, comfort, comfort. I like my comfort zone. Sometimes the Holy Spirit doesn't care about my comfort zone. Sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to kick me out of my comfort zone. Okay? And when it does, it's the encourager. That's what that word means. It gives us our courage back. So that no matter what else is going on out there, no matter how rough it's getting... We can be strong. We can be courageous. We do not have to be afraid. I hope this encourages you. Um, so we're going to sing this song. Communion is served in room 100 if anybody wants to uh, partake of communion. And then after this song, we'll be dismissed in prayer. So let's stand up. Let's sing together and encourage one another. <laughs>